Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Breakfast today is dedicated in celebration of the birth uh, of their granddaughter, Ta'anat and Yaakov Daba, sponsored by Rini and Ezra Daba. Mabruk, Mazatov, Breakfast in the class today is dedicated in loving memory and Eluvi Nishmat Abraham Ben Zolecha Avichesquel, Alava Shalom, sponsored by his son Maurice. Chosh, MD. Breakfast is dedicated in loving memory of Raymonde and David Sofer. Alehem Shalom, Lilui Nishmatem, David Moshe Ben Naima, Alava Shalom, and Simcha Bat Hana. Aleha Shalom, sponsored by the son Edward Sofer. Breakfast on the class is dedicated in loving memory of Sophie Shabbat. Aleha Shalom, Lilui Nishmat, Simcha Bat Sarah, sponsored by her son David Shabbat. <coughs> and finally, breakfast on the class is sponsored by. Natan Aharon Halevi Ben Rut as a Seudat Hoda'a. Rabotai, the Pasuk begins our parashah, Ela Hamishpatim Ashetasim Lifnehem. These are the laws that you shall place before them. Now, it's interesting to point out that Rabotai, when we see that in, in Har Sinai, the, the Pasuk, the Rashi says, that why do we put this parasha close to the parasha of Har Sinai? Just now we read about the delivery of the Ten Commandments, and now you're reading about all these parashat mishpatim. To tell you, says the pasuk, says Rashi on this pasuk, to teach you that just as the halachot, the aseret debrot, was set at Mount Sinai, they were given on the tablets and brought down on the mountain, so too all and each of these mitzvot uh, that I said in this week's parasha are also ne'emru misinai. We're also taught on Mount Sinai. Rabotai, I think there's something very interesting about this. Why is the pasuk going to great lengths to hint this to us that these mitzvot are given on Mount Sinai? Where would I have thought they were given? What would I have thought? That these mitzvot are not from God? These mitzvot came from someone else? I, I want to share with you a beautiful idea. Our Chachamim point out that at the time where HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave the Torah, each and every person that was there at the foot of Mount Sinai was healed. If someone had a difficulty speaking, suddenly his problem went away. If someone had a difficulty seeing, his problem went away. If they had a difficulty hearing, their problem went away. They were chiger, they were limping, their problem was solved. Every single person who had an impediment or a disability, their disability was healed. Except for one person. One. Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, we know, had a difficulty speaking. He had a speech impediment. And Moshe Rabbeinu's speech impediment did not go away at Sinai. And the question everybody asks is, if anyone should have been healed, it was him. You know, if they got close to the mountain, Moshe was in Shamayim with God. And Moshe's voice, his mouth, that was not healed. So there are different answers to this question. But I'll share with you my favorite. My favorite answer to this question is that Moshe Rabbeinu was tasked with giving over the message of God to the Jewish people. Now, we know that God, when he spoke to the Jewish people, spoke through Moshe. In fact, in the words of the Chachamim, it says, The Shekhinah, God would speak to the Jewish people from through the throat of Moshe. Ask the Mefarshim, so how did the Jewish people know when it was Moshe speaking to them? His own idea, his own concept, his own, or when, whether it was God's direct commandment. How did they know if it was And you know what they answered? They answered the most beautiful answer. 
Because when Shekhinah medaberet mitoch gerono, the Shekhinah spoke through his throat. Moshe's speech impediment came from where? Kevat why he burnt his tongue. So if the sounds he was making, if the law he was giving over was said with a speech impediment, they knew it was Moshe speaking personally because it would come out of his mouth. But if it was God communicating an idea through Moshe, then it was given through the throat. It was said perfectly, enunciated clearly. So for Moshe Rabbeinu, for his life, for his life's mission, actually it was better for him to remain with a speech impediment so that people could understand with clarity what came from God and what came from Moshe. Rabotai, if this is the case, if this is the case, you see that there's such uh, an importance to understand where the, uh, the origin of a law comes from, if that's the case, then why is it that suddenly over here we come and we say, just as those mitzvot are from Mount Sinai, these mitzvot are from Mount Sinai. Okay, I'll figure that out. Moshe's not making them up. And if he is making up the law, I already know. I know from the way that he's speaking, which laws are divine and which ones are his own, uh, his own additions. Rabotai, I want to share with you something amazing. All of the mitzvot in this parasha, they begin, of all the mitzvot, they begin with a very strange mitzvah. And I have to add, uh, with an explanation, how strange it is. So we've just had the Aseret HaDibrot, Hazaku Baruch. What would you think the first law, after the tablets are given, what should the first law be? The first law should be, one would think, about uh, tzedakah, about this, about that, other things. What's the first mitzvah, the law of a Hebrew slave? First of all, Dachila, we just got out of Egypt. You got to tell me now that there's still laws about me being a slave as a Hebrew. Not only was I a slave to the Egyptians, now there could be, I could be a slave to another Jewish guy. Rabotai, all of Parashat Mishpatim engages pretty much throughout, consistently, with the laws of dealing with another human being and how you deal with their money. All of it. Now, in a normal society, we create a consensus about how people interact with each other, what the laws should be, and the bed Din, so to speak, the law of the land indicates how you treat that person's money, and then they kind of make, a, they, they, they work it out. In Judaism, the laws of how you interact with someone, being honest, making sure that if you break something, you pay for it, that's, that's not a, a law of common sense. That's a biblically mandated law. If you hit somebody with your car, if your property takes the guy out, if you leave a ditch in the road, the guy falls on the object, that's not common sense, that law. God himself came down and said, this is the halakha, if someone comes in and humiliates someone, there's a law of, comp- of compensation, of damages. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was someone that gave his entire life in teaching people how to deal with people. He was the leader of the Musar movement, of teaching people how to live better lives, how to be better people. And yet Rabbi when it came time for him to pass away, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter passed away in Parashat Mishpatim. And all the Gidolim of the generation said, Na'elo v'ya'elo, it befits that this person, his time of pitira should be during this week's parasha. Rabotai, if that's the case, it's important to understand the nature of Ben Adam Lechavero. And I'll share this with you. We know last week we read about the Luchot. 
if you ever read the beginning, right? You read all of the aseret that they brought, you'll notice that the first five of the commandments are spread out much more than the last five. The second five is lotirzach one, lotinaf what two two right lotignov three lotani beyachat two pesukim. The second the last one. So all of the second five, the left side of the luchot are either very brief, i.e. two words, or a pasuk and a half. On the first side, it's very long. Now most of us are used to uh, tablets that say, right? But that's not what the original luchot looked like. The original luchot had all of the aseret that they brought on them. So there were far more words on the right side of the aseret that they brought than there were on the left side. I once saw the most magnificent concept. Why? The luchot were the same size. In height and in width. In fact, we always see them with the rounded off tafs, the rounded off tops. But it's clear in the Gemara that the luchot were not rounded at the top. They were, they were squared off at the top. And you should know, the Labavitcher Rebbe, I don't know, he had a pet peeve. If he ever saw Luchot in a shul, we would round it off, he would lose his mind. He would tell him to take it down, put up new ones. <laughs> I don't know how that would go down in the shul. Like, you know, the rabbi comes in, I don't like that, would take this down, change it, you know. I'm not sure they would appreciate that so much, okay? But this was something he was very, very strict about. Now, listen to this, this is amazing. I saw once brought down, you know why God did that? I don't know if you're familiar with this. If you ever worked with uh, typesetting, you'll know that one of the things that happens when you add more words on one side is as you add more words, the text has to get smaller and smaller in order to fit it. That means that when you have lo tirzach, lo tenaf, lo tignov, lo right? It, with much less words, the font can be bigger. Now maybe an interior designer would not like the fact that they're different size letters, but God doesn't care about that. Why was that the case? So that when you looked at the luchot, the mitzvot between God and man were written in smaller letters. Between God and man and God were written in smaller letters. And the mitzvot that were written between man and their fellow man were much larger. So a person could see it from further away. So a person could concentrate on that. Rabotai, the laws of Ben Adam Chavero between man and their fellow man is given such importance in our Torah. I want to share with you a, a, a beautiful idea that is also heartbreaking. Our rabbis tell us, and we read the Haftarah about Chana v'Shiva Banea. Chana is married to, excuse me, Chana, Chana v'Shiva. Chana, the mother of Shemuel. Chana is married to Elkanah. And during their marriage, uh, her, her sister wife, Yani, okay, Penina, gives birth to child after child after child. Chana has no kids. She's devastated. She says to Elkanah, please, you got to help me. Elkanah says, what would you, am I not good enough for you? I can't give you children, but aren't I as good for you as if I, we have, yeah, okay, you know, don't, don't be so sad. Don't I treat you well? Don't I love you? You have to hear Elkanah's, uh, uh, you know, heart in this. Chanah is not satisfied. She goes and she prays and it is from Chanah herself in this time of crisis that we learn the laws of prayer. She prays quietly. She's the first person to do the Amidah Belachash. I said this once. Someone said, you mean without Chana, we, we would only have, uh, you know, it would always be Kol Ram. 
<laughs> right? You would only have one. She prays quietly. She, we learn from her how to pray. She's blessed because of this prayer. She's blessed with a child called Shemuel. But the Pasuk says that Penina all the time would, trot, would wind up Chana. She'd buy clothing for her kids. She would say, oh, are you going to buy these shoes for your kid? Are you going to buy this shirt for your kid? She has no kids. And she's teasing her. Chana was devastated. And that's what drove her to pray. Our rabbis tell us that because of the pain that Penina caused Chana, every child that Chana had, Penina lost one. So it's Mazal Tov, Shiva. Mazal Tov, Shiva. Could you imagine? Rabbi Eskr of Yechayim Shmulevitz, he says, our rabbis teach us, Shnaim l'shem shamaim nitkavnu. There are two whose intentions are only l'shem shamaim. I when I read this, my, my mouth fell open. Who are the two that the Gemara delineates as l'shem shamaim? Satan upenina. The Satan, the Yetzhara, the Malach Hamavet. There's two that are L'shem Shemaim. Satan upenina and penina. Penina intended, she saw that her, that her, that her uh, mate over here, Chana, was unable to give birth. She saw that Elkanah's prayers were not getting answered. She saw that Chana was not digging deep enough in her sa'ar to be able to elicit a heavenly reaction. So she knew if she needled her, if she pushed her just a little bit, she knew that the result would be that Chana would have children. Her intentions were pure. And who says this about Penina? The Gemara says, not, uh, you know, a family psychologist. I think her motivations, right? It's the Gemara is telling you this. Rabutai, even though her motivations were that way, she suffered this loss. How could it be? Now, I want to add to this. When you say Satanu Penina, first of all, you know, it's not just telling you, look, look what kind of company she's, have, she's in. The Satan is what? What is the Satan? Is he a human being? No. The Satan is what? He's a Malach. He's an angel. Correct? The Satan, he has no free will whatsoever. Is the Satan doing God's will? 100%. In fact, there's zero enjoyment that the Satan gets from fulfilling his mission. The Satan doesn't throw a party every time you do the wrong thing. The Satan mourns that you do the wrong thing. But that's his job, to challenge you, to offer you the opportunity of good and evil, so that when you choose good, it was done out of an abundance of options and not uh, without any possibility of, uh, of choosing anything else, so that your actions are meaningful. The Satan is only purely intentioned. Penina was only purely intentioned. You see that from the comparison between her and the Satan. If that's the case, Rabotai, why is she punished? And Rav Chaim Shmulevitz says something devastating. He says, because Ben Adam Lechavero is like a fire. And if you stick your hands into a fire, you're going to get burned. What if your intentions are good? What difference does it make? If you run into a burning building to save a, a child that's inside and you catch on fire, are you not going to be burned? Are you not going to have smoke inhalation? It's the reality of the situation that this is going to have an effect on you. If that's the case, Rabbi Wotai, it doesn't matter 
what your intentions are if you break someone's heart, there's hell to pay. This is important, Rabotai, to understand. Because a lot of times, what do we do? We want to push people to do the right thing. You have a son, a son-in-law, a, a, an intern in the company, and you know if you don't cut them off, if you don't uh, push them off a cliff, you know, they won't learn to jump themselves, and you tell yourself, I'm only doing it for their benefit. When we are mitzahir, our wives, Rabotai, for their benefit, they have, what are we here? They have to learn. That's fire. And I'm going to end with this. The Gemara says that um, Rav Rahumi was learning with Rava, with one of the Amoraim. And he used to learn all the time, and he would come home once a year until, you know, like Rabbi Akiva, in his process of learning, of growing, he would come home once a year, Erev Yom Kippur. One year, he gets a little bit involved in the sugya, and he, he's, it's late. He's involved, he forgot. His wife is at home. She's waiting for him, Erev Yom Kippur. He doesn't come. Because he's late, the Gemara says, his wife was sad and one tear came out of her eye. Rav Rachumi. At that time, Rabbi Rachumi was sitting in a upstairs in the Beit Midrash. The floor collapsed underneath him. He fell down one floor and he died because of the tear that his wife shed. How did that help? She's crying that he's late. Now he ain't never coming home. The answer is it's not a matter of logic. It's a matter of fire. The ability that we have to look after somebody else, to be conscious of someone else's feelings, is so crucial. It needs to be written in giant letters on the Luchot. Comes the Gemara, the, the Pesukim in Mishpatim and says, I want you to understand that the laws that were given at Mount Sinai, they are first and foremost about taking care of and interacting with your fellow man. Why don't we begin with the laws of a Hebrew slave? Because if ever there was a mitzvah that the Jewish people could understand and empathize with, it would be this mitzvah and it would be at this time. You give this mitzvah at the end of the 613, right before they get into Eretz Israel, they already know what it means to be, feel like free men. They already forgot that they were once slaves. Or at least they forgot a little bit. By the end of the time in the Midbar, you already have the first generation has passed away. It's the next generation going in. They never lived in Misraim. <clears throat> so God says, while it's fresh, He says, how do you treat someone who stole how do you treat someone who didn't have enough money to pay back that which he stole so How do you treat someone who has no network, who has no ability to fight back? How do you treat the most vulnerable person in the world? How do you treat them? That was said at Mount Sinai. That was Misinai. Powerful. This is the message that God is communicating, not just to the Jewish people, but to the entire world. He says to humanity, there's another way to live. You are not just another animal on the food chain with a little bit more sophistication. You were designed to be different than the lions, tigers, cougars, bears, and zebras out there. One prey, one, uh, uh, one stalker. You were designed to be able to take someone 
who can't defend themselves and raise them up. You know, Rabbi Arya Levine, when he was about to pass away, he was crying. And his children came to him and they said, Rab, why are you crying? All you did was mitzvot. All you did was study Torah. You're worried about going to Olam Abad. You'll be fine. There's a special chair with your name carved in it. Rabbi Arya Levine. He says, I'm not crying for me. He said, who are you crying for? Maybe they thought he was crying for them, the children. He says, I'm crying for you. He says, I'm crying for all the prisoners in jail and all the lepers in the hospital, in the contagious hospital. Who will be their rabbi? I was the only one that went to the prisons that cared about the worst elements of society to try to rehabilitate them. I was the only one that was willing to go into the hospitals where it was a danger of catching something because I felt so badly for people that were crying out. I would go blow shofar and Rosh Hashanah. I was the only one that would go. Who's going to be the rabbi of the prisoner, of the contagious disease-stricken individual? It made such an impression on his son, Rabbi Raphael, that he promised his father on his deathbed that every Rosh Hashanah I'm going to go. I'll be the one that goes, that takes over your place. And with that, his father was comforted. Could you imagine those thoughts being your last thoughts on earth? Who's going to take care of the prisoner? Matir Asurim. Who's going to take care of the sick? Rofecholim. What a way to emulate Bore Olam himself. May we be zocher to have those kind of hearts beating in our chests forevermore. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve